Daryl Griffith, Golden Griff, Dr. Duncanstein. He is on the podcast on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS number 3112, equal housing lender. Good week on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network. Right before this one in the feed, Frank Layden talking to Holly Rowe on the Altcast, which of course you can go back and view all the stories that we talked about on the Altcast on Jazz Plus. I caught up with Dave Checkets. We talked to Kerry Scurry, Mike the Brown Bear. We got into it all. The Jazz Brothers, one of the forgotten bands of the 80s, comprised entirely of Utah Jazz players. It's fun, it's good, but this Frank Layden interview, you're not going to want to miss it. He gives the come up what it was like to take over a franchise where you didn't know if it would last. There was no point where you thought, oh, the Jazz, they're going to be one of the most successful franchises of the 90s and 2000s. No indicators. And Frank showed it. So check it out. Frank Layden on the front row. And also the documentary, the latest trailer with Frank Layden, encapsulates all about that man. He was the chief mascot. He was the chief clown. He was everything for the franchise in the early years. But he had a pretty good eye for talent. And one of the guys he found is the guest today, Daryl Griffith. Still the very highest draft pick in jazz history. Griff was number two overall in his draft class. He was already renowned as a prospect in his early years. There's this article in Sports Illustrated that talks about how he was offered a multi-million dollar contract to go to the ABA out of high school. He could have been Spencer Haywood, the second version, and he would have had, I'm sure, a very good career in the ABA and jumped somewhere else in the NBA had he gone that route. But he goes to college, hometown in Louisville, wins a national championship, and comes to the Jazz. And he like Ricky Green, sees a transformation from losing to winning. That's his story, and that's his contribution to the jazz organization. He was the first jazz man in Utah, played his entire career here. First Utah jazz player to have his number retired. That's Daryl Griffith. Enjoy Dr. Dungenstein on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. Take me back to where you were growing up in Louisville. When did you first start playing pros? Uh, well, growing up in Louisville, yeah, I was blessed to have a lot of talent. Didn't realize as a young kid that I could dunk the ball in seventh grade. Didn't know that was a big deal. It was just being a kid and, you know, using my God-given ability. I didn't realize that I had special talent until my ninth grade year. <clears throat> we had a league that was comparable to the Rutgers League in New York. Our league was called the Dirt Bowl. Okay. And we had um, uh, different divisions, and one of the divisions was the Pro Division. And before that league started, uh, in the eighth grade, myself and my 
teammate Bobby Turner in, in elementary school and junior high school, we would sit down and watch him play. And we, uh, George Chisley, uh, which played for the ABA Colonels in the Florida Floridians, and he's also uh, married to my neighbor, uh, Sarita Summers. Uh, he had a team in there called Little All Stars, and they had Gilmore and Issel and them guys. We would uh, sit there and watch it. We asked him, we said, hey, George, can we play in this league? He said, no, nah, yeah, I ain't ready. So we like bumped that. We got our own team. <laughs> and we put together a team and we played in the pro division. And we were run up for three years in a row. And so we became the park's favorite. And this, it was just, you know, they underestimated the young guys. And uh, we asked a bunch of guys that played pro ball on the team, Duran Macklin. Uh, myself and then a guy by the name of Bob Miller. He used, he used to play at UC Cincinnati. Uh, they all grew up in our neighborhood. So uh, when we put that team together, again, we became the, the park's favorite. And our, our t- team was named Chocolate City. Oh, okay. And uh, so it was fun back then. So during that time of my ninth grade year, uh, I guess it was when I dunked on Artis Gilmore. I was going to say, I read that story <laughs> yeah, about you that, dunking on Artis yeah. Gilmore, who is a seven-footer. Yeah, that was, uh, I guess that was my to me, in my mind, that was my coming out moment because I'm people going crazy and stuff, and I've done it, you know, ever since I was in seventh grade. And you know, I guess that's when I knew that God had given me a special talent, uh, and uh, um, things just started happening. You know, you, you end up being in a high school player in the nation. You you get invited to the first high school player ever invited to Olympic trials. It's just things start rolling. Uh, you uh, your life changes, but you really don't know, and you really don't care. You just being a teenager, uh, and granted, this is before all cell phones, social media, yeah. and stuff like that. Google, you know, when we would go visit somebody, you know, you got to carry some bunch of change with you because you get lost. You go on the phone booth and say, "Hey, I'm on the corner here. Where you live at now?" You couldn't pop in there like Google, uh, but. Uh, uh, Coming up in them times makes you really appreciate how uh, the game has changed, how life has changed. I mean, you know, social media and everything, and the, and the way this, you know, podcast. You never thought about podcasts back then, you know, streaming and all that stuff. It's just, it's just a, a situation where you reflect, you look back, you know, like the reason why we're here for the 50 year of the Jazz. You look back at all that and. And every time I come to Salt Lake City, I'm just amazed at how the city has progressed. Unbelievable. Uh, but it's a blessing. You know, it's, it's you smile. Every time I come back to Salt Lake, I just smile because I remember when, you know. I wonder how that artist Gilmore story gets to other people. So it's in Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's the way, that was the social media of the time, yeah. how people... Yeah read that story and it yeah. gets passed on so that it's yeah. not confined to just Louisville and people in Kentucky. And, and what was unfortunate, you know, there wasn't any footage, no cell phone, yeah. you didn't get to see it. You know, uh, I tell everybody that they don't realize how social media has transformed. You look at the way newspaper has kind of demise because social media is everybody's own personal newspaper. You know, now everybody can make an opinion. Back in the day, like you said, it would, you know, you would have to read to find out about somebody. It's, it's instant. You know, pictures, articles, comments. You know, it's it's good and it's it's bad. You know, but certainly can be yeah, bad. Yeah. The second overall pick in the nineteen eighty draft, after a championship at Louisville, playing for your team, a place that you're still connected mm-hmm. to now. 
but there was a, an option that you could have been a Boston Celtic. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's the story behind that? Well, my agent, the late, great Bob Wolf, you know, he was the agent of his time. I don't know if you looked at the show called Arliss. It was about agents, and uh, it was on HBO. He was, you know, it was almost based on his character. Uh, so he had a lot of, a lot of clients, you know, myself and Bird and Otis Birdsong. I had Larry King for Larry King Live. He, rep- wow. he represented uh, uh, Anwar Sadat's daughter who wrote a book about him. He was the guy from Egypt, you know, yeah. doing that whole Palestinian thing that was going on. He, 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 uh, so he had a lot of clients, A-list clients. And uh, he at one time represented all the Boston Celtics. Okay. You know, uh, he. So he has a relationship with Red. I mean, Red like that. Yeah. So uh, Red came to him and said, hey, I like this Griffith kid. He said, we're looking to get a big man and a shooting guard. And here's how we're going to do it. So uh, the plan was they had, Boston had the number one pick. And Utah had the number two pick. Golden State had the number three pick. So Boston said, let's get the big man. So they traded them one pick uh, to uh, swap picks and got Joe Barry Curl. So now, not Joe Barry Curl, but uh, Robert, Robert Parrish. Parrish. Yep. So now they got the big man. So they was like, okay, Utah will take McHale, and then the Griffith will be there at three for us to pick, so I, I accomplished my goal. Utah took uh, myself and Robert and uh, Kevin McHale went to uh, went to Boston. Got three championships. <laughs> you had a pretty good uh, career yourself, but yeah, now I've been blessed. And, you know, you look back. You know, it, it's it's to me. At the time, I was drafted by the Jazz, coming off a national championship team. Yeah, uh, you know, selling out sixteen five at the time before they expanded the arena, and then coming to Salt Lake City, which was the lowest team in professional sports at the time, and the market was it was just it was different. You know, going to the games, you got twenty five hundred people, and I'm used to sixteen five. Yep. So all that was different. You know, that was my worst year in sports, my first year at the Jazz, because I. You know, I, I'm, I always played on this level, with not only the level as far as fan base and having a great team and you know great players and and I was I call it the casualty of being a top pick, you know. It happens to picks now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's different, you know. Yeah. It's the, it's you know the, the the league when I came in, uh, it wasn't in marketed. You don't care where you play in now. Right. You're gonna be marketed. With the ESPN contracts, all the contracts, you know, we were lucky to get on TV. Yeah. You know, we got kind of lost in the shuffle due to the market size and the team that we were and us winning. And so we end up, uh, you know, key draft picks, you know, they traded for AD. They got uh, uh, me the second round to compliment AD. Uh, they also drafted in the first round John Duran from, uh, from Georgetown. He ended up having an injury uh, that prevented him from uh, – having a flourish, a flourish career. And then, you know, picks came along. We picked up Ricky Green. We get Jeff Wilkins. We get Mark Malone. I mean, uh, Mark Eaton from underneath a car in California. He was an auto car. mechanic. Yeah, I remember Frank telling us a story. He said, you can't teach height. <laughs> yeah. He said, I seen that guy on the bench at UCLA, and I told Scott, he said, go find that guy. Scott came back. He said, he pulled him underneath a car. He was working on a car. You know, so he kind of put that team and orchestrated that team. My first coach was Tom, the late Tom Masaki was yep. my first coach, and then he didn't make it past the year, and then Frank took over. And to me, that was pivotal 
in the change of the organization and the mindset of the organization. And it helped Ricky Green. Uh, Frank tells a story, and Ricky tells a story about how once Frank was in there, he was more transition, run and mm -hmm. gun, which isn't the way Tom Nisalki No, played. it was different. He was more disciplined, run, run his office. It helped everybody, that. you know, yeah. myself, everybody. I mean, we, we, had to, we had some athletes. So, you know, gotta let them run. I remember uh, when I was in the University of Louisville, uh, late Denny Crum, you know, I was thinking about going pros and I said, coach, man, you know, I ain't, I ain't feel the way we playing. And he said, let me get John on the phone. So he calls John, oh, no, I'm in his office, I think it's my sophomore year. And he said, coach, he said, I got this young man here with a bunch of talent. And he took all my name out, coach, we said, I'm familiar with him. <laughs> he said, he wants to, you think we should to change the way we play and run up and down the floor. And I'll never forget the way he, uh, John Wooden told Coach Crawford. Coach Crawford just paused. He said, if you got horses, let them run. <laughs> and Coach was just silent. And that's what I was saying. I was like, hey, Coach, yeah. you know, let's, let's let us ball. And he changed. I mean, you know, he he, he, he started letting us go up and down the floor. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's similar to what uh, uh, Frank did when he got here. I remember Frank, the first game he took off, he said, don't make no more three passes before you shoot. Three passes, just shoot the ball. Okay. You know, he wanted us to get in. I think we played Kansas City, and we ended up beating them by 20 because we was just out there. like It was like fun, having a good time. Right. So then he kind of put his system in around that, and it, it, it made, a, made a big difference. I, you know, I shot 10 three-pointers in one year. I made 10. You know, he said, you can shoot the ball. Start shooting the three-pointer. So the next year, I broke the, I broke the NBA three-point record, you know, based on Frank's philosophy. People always think of you as a dunker, but you were a shooter. Yeah. You yeah. led the league in threes. Mm -hmm. Two years in, in a row. In 84, when you guys go mm -hmm. to the playoffs. Yeah. Where'd you develop that? Because it was a hierarchy shot. Uh, when you work out by yourself sometimes, sometimes trying to get people to work out with you becomes challenging, especially when I was working at all different hours of the night. I had the key to the gym uh, at the university where I had gotten, I got the, the university didn't give me the key. I worked at, a, in, at the gym in the summertime. Uh, for a, um, uh, they had a thing for the youth and Crawford Gym, which is where we played it on campus, was one of the places that myself and Bobby Turner worked there. So they gave us a key, and when the job was over, we, we didn't ever turn in the key, so the key still worked. <laughs> so we we were going out and work out at night, and um, so I, I wanted to have how can I simulate a defender on me, yeah, and working out by yourself, you know. Uh, so I was working out one day, I looked up, and they had some volleyball poles in the corner, about five of them, and they were about 10 feet too. So I said, hmm. So I started lining the volleyball poles up around and going up and shooting over them. And then I wanted to make it a little bit more realer, so I got baseball gloves, and I stuck them on top of the pole. Blocker, like a, like yeah. A hand. yeah. And that's how I, you know, I shot over the pole, that's how I developed the art. And it served you guys well. You had yeah. You had the leader in blocks, mm -hmm. leader in scoring, leader in threes, leader in steals. steals. Yeah. That was a pretty good year, 1984. Yeah. yeah, it was a great year. Would it mean to you that you'd seen a team that would lose 18 games in a row, only won 20 games your first year, become a playoff team? That was a great moment for me. I, I, was, I was extremely proud when we uh, dropped the banner. I'll, yeah. never, I'll never forget that day. Well, people yeah. say winning the division mattered back yeah. then, and winning yeah. the Midwest division the way yeah. that you guys won. That's but, a thing. Particularly for us, yeah. you know, because we were at the bottom. 
and to see that team transform and to be relevant, you know, was 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 major for me. You know, especially being in this market, uh, it, it was it, it it made me go back to 1980. Okay, now we win it. This is what winning is about. You know, it's the feeling you get when you win. You know, uh, so it, it was it, that, that was one of the highlights uh, of me uh, being the Jazzers that year. What does it mean to you that they're bringing back you, former teammates, the franchise Jeff Wilkins, the fastest of them all, Ricky Green? What does it mean that? It's always good to see these guys. I mean, you know, when I seen them in the lobby on our way over here, just to see these guys, you know, uh, everybody slowed down a little bit by the time <laughs> sets in. But it's just, it just, you just reminisce, man. And, you know, I hugged the fellas, man. It's just, you know, we we did something special. You know, even though we didn't win the NBA championship, but I think we were the foundation that transformed the Jazz into what it is now. You know, we we were the, the, the we were the base. You set the table. Yeah. Twenty years of not missing the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. That started with you guys. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's what you know. I, I tell, uh, you know, when I was talking to Ricky now. I said, man, you know, it's a part of our legacy, man. You know, everybody can't win the championship. Most people don't. We wish we would have. I won on every level except the pro level. You know, but uh, uh, we can say that uh, you know, looking at this practice facility from Westminster to here. You know, this, this transformation of the city, you know, we were part of that. This number 35 is hanging in the rafters of the Delta Center. He is Daryl Griffith, the Golden Griff, on Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. Daryl, thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. Good to be here.